review. Uh, so the miniseries is entitled The Sovereignty of God or Sovereignty of God. Uh, like I said last week, the reason that we are talking about the sovereignty of God is to give us a good foundation for understanding the 10th plague. Right, what's the 10th and last plague? Death of firstborn. Not just Pharaoh's firstborn. Everybody else's firstborn in the land of Egypt at that time. Even the cattle's firstborn. Uh, said that last week as well, right? So when we, when we think about that and we think about the, the, the shooting of schools that are happening nowadays, death of children, it hits us differently like what I said last week. Um, and I don't want us to kind of look at this and think, wow, God is, you know, he's mercy, merciless. What's wrong with God? Why would God kill firstborn? And, and it would be fine if it was just Pharaoh's firstborn because Pharaoh is the bad guy. But... Everybody else is firstborn. Like, it doesn't sound right. So that's why, uh, that's why we're talking about the sovereignty of God. I want us to get a good understanding of the sovereignty of God. Because when you understand what it means for God to be sovereign, you're not going to look at this plague and say, yeah, God is a sadistic tyrant. Don't want to worship that God. Uh, there's been a lot of Christians who was tripped up, uh, stumbled because of this study on the sovereignty of God and because of what they see around them like right why would God allow COVID why would God allow me to lose my job why would God allow my child to die why would there's a lot of those questions that are going around in our minds that we kind of can't get a hold of because I don't think we understand what it means for God to be to be sovereign so that's why we're we're here that's why we're taken up the sovereignty of God. And last week I said that um, the sovereignty of God uh, means that God is all-powerful, right? that God um, is in control. We said that last week. Um, I'm going to add to that. Um, so last week I said in the biblical sense, God to be sovereign means that he's king, he's lord, he's ruler. I'm going to add to that uh, for God to be sovereign means to be in absolute power, absolute control. Uh, and I say absolute because we also learned last week that being sovereign means that God can override or overrule any other power. Right? Remember that from last week? He can override or overrule any other power. I don't care if it's nations, kings, rulers, or your own. He can override those. Uh, but God is sovereign in that nobody else can override him. And he's, what he says goes, and it will happen. Uh, now, last week, I also mentioned that God having absolute power is ultimately good for us. Uh, why? Because every time we think about somebody with absolute power, especially in the perspective of human beings, it's always these people with power, but they always tend to abuse it. Look at Putin, right? He has all kinds of power. But what is he doing? Abusing it. Uh, you know, that's why there's corrupt governments. And talk of that because of human beings with power and the tendencies they abuse. So when we look at God and say, God has absolute power, first thing we think, oh my, what if he abuses it? Can God abuse his sovereign 
power. I said, no, because God's sovereignty is ultimately governed by two other attributes of God. And namely, those are God's wisdom and God's justice and mercy. Right? Those are very important attributes for God to have if God has sovereign, overall, absolute power. He has to have wisdom. And he has to have mercy. And his wisdom and mercy and justice has to be perfect. And God has those. Right? Uh, I also said that uh, God's sovereignty or his absolute uh, control over things is that uh, God is sovereign both in the spiritual and physical realm. Right? He's not only ruler in the spiritual, he's also sovereign right here. Um, his power over the physical realm is usually used in the Bible in order to accomplish his purposes in the spiritual realm. So that he can show us spiritual truths, he exercises power in the physical. Um, God's sovereignty uh, even governs events. I said that last week as well, right? Events that we would otherwise perceive to be random. Uh, and I use uh, election. Some, uh, there's an election electing an official. So us, that seems random because everybody has their own choices to make. You can choose whatever you want. So the winner really is, is random. Um, so uh, I said that God is sovereign over that governs that. And I said that the way he governs that is that God is also sovereign when it comes to the decisions of all men. Right? Now, when I said that last week, I clarified it and I said, when I said that God is sovereign over men's decisions, I said that that's true, but not in the sense that God makes decisions for men. Okay? You guys get the difference? He doesn't make our decisions for us. We make it ourselves, but it's sovereign over our decisions. Right? So what does it mean for God to be sovereign over the decision of man? It means that there's no decision that man can make that is outside God's sovereign will. Ultimately, any decision that you make, right or wrong, will accomplish God's sovereign purpose for his world, for this world, and for the salvation plan that he has set for us. Now, I said that last week also, that this uh, topic of uh, God's sovereignty over man's decisions is the biggest problem that man has over the sovereignty of God. Why? Because we want to be in control. All of us here. Right? We want to have some say in things. Uh, right? That's why when you go to like, places nowadays, it's always like, uh, you know, uh, I like this place called uh, Blaze Pizza, right? Have you been to Blaze Pizza, those of you? When you buy pizza, it's usually uh, whatever they have. Like if it's meat, whatever meat they want to put in there, you just have to eat it. Uh, you know, if it's Hawaiian, you have to have what? Pineapples. Uh, so people don't like that. Uh, I don't want, I want Hawaiian with no pineapples. I want my choice, right? I, I, I want Hawaiian, but I don't want pineapples. I want to have my choice. Like Blaze Pizza, you get to make your own. Right? There's a lot of those things now, right? You get to customize. Why? Because we always have to have our say on things. People always have to be, uh, you know, given that freedom to choose. So do we have that choice if God is sovereign over 
our decisions. That's the top. That's the, that's the issue. A lot of people don't like it. I don't, when you hear sovereignty, they think, oh, no, that means I don't have a choice. No, I don't like that. I don't want to worship that God. That's the question that we need to understand and answer today. And I think when we answer that question, we also answer the question that I posted to you last week. Uh, last week, I, gave, I, I said that we're going to answer two questions. First question was, what does it mean for God to be sovereign? And I hope we answered that already. And the second question is, what does the sovereignty of God have to do with the 10th plague? What does the sovereignty of God have to do with the plague that killed all the firstborn in Egypt? Now, again, for us to answer that question, we need to go back to the root of why and how this 10th plague had to take place to begin with. Um, if we were to base it on the story the context of the story, some people would come to the conclusion that this 10th plague had to take place because of Pharaoh's stubbornness and hardness of heart, right? To let the people of God free. Now, who agrees with that? The 10th plague had to happen because Pharaoh was stubborn. Agree? Good. <laughs> you know your story. That's good. Right? That's exactly what happened, right? And it goes back to the first plague, right? How did the first plague start? What, what happened? Moses went up to Pharaoh, let my people go, only for three days. We just want a long weekend. Pharaoh said, no. Okay, so first plague comes. And then Pharaoh said, no again. Second plague comes. No again, no again, no again. And then in a couple of plagues, he says, okay, I'll let your people go. But he didn't really let them go. So it kept on happening and happening and happening because of his continuous, what? Hardening of his heart to rebel against God. So yes, this happened because Pharaoh hardened his own heart. But the story also says, if you can remember, even before the plagues began, what did God say? You guys read it. Exodus 4 verse 21. Can you guys read that? So even though, even before Moses even asked for the long weekend, God already said, yeah, go there, do the miracles, but I will harden. Pharaoh's heart. Uh, Exodus 7, 3 and 4. You guys read it. Twice he said it. Twice God said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. So the question is, who hardened who? Did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Or did Pharaoh harden his own heart? Who says, no, it was God who hardened it? 
Now who says, no, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. It was Moses who hardened Pharaoh's heart. No. <laughs> who hardened who? I'm going to argue this morning for both. So God, yes, in a way, hardened Pharaoh's heart. And Pharaoh, in a way, <laughs> hardened his own heart. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart, I would argue, was done by Pharaoh. But God was ultimately sovereign over Pharaoh's hardening. I'm going to explain as we go along. How does that work? Now, having said that, we can also say it this way, that it was God who allowed for Pharaoh's heart to be hardened. Say in both of those ways. Now, if that's the case, so if both are true, yeah, Pharaoh hardened his own heart, but at the same time, God also hardened. If both are true, then we need to answer a couple of more questions. Okay? First, what does it mean for God to allow Pharaoh's heart to be hardened? Was Pharaoh good when he was born? And then God hardened his heart? Is that what it means for Pharaoh to harden, or sorry, for God to harden Pharaoh's heart? That's the first question we need to answer. What does it mean for God, for God to allow Pharaoh's heart to be hardened? And second, does this mean that since God allowed for Pharaoh to harden his own heart, was Pharaoh ultimately responsible for his actions? If it was God that just allowed him to harden his own heart, was he responsible for his actions of being stubborn, which caused the deaths of thousands in Egypt, including all the firstborn? Is he still responsible for that? Because it was God who hardened. Is he still responsible? So let's begin. You guys ready? I'm tempted to say, if you, have, if you have to go to the washroom, go now. <laughs> or turn off your cell phones. Or so. yeah, I don't want any ringing in, in, in the middle of this, okay? So let's, answer, let's begin by answering these questions. And we're going to get our answers from another explanation about the sovereignty of God. Remember last week we took up two explanations about the sovereignty of God. We're going to take another look at another answer about the sovereignty of God. Uh, and this time is coming from the Apostle Paul in Romans 9. Okay? And the reason why I'm, I'm going through this is because you will see. Let's go. Romans 9, 17 to 19. This is what it says. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, in 18... He has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So the way Paul puts the sovereignty of God in the case of Romans 9 is that God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And he connects it to Pharaoh's hardening. 
Paul quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes from Exodus 9.16, right? About God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And again, uh, close attention to verses 17 and 18 where Paul quotes this, right? This very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And from that quote, Paul concludes in verse 18, Therefore, or so, that God may have mercy on whomever he wills, and he may harden whomever he wills. That's the conclusion of Paul when it comes to God's sovereignty. He has mercy on whomever he wills, he hardens whomever he wills. Now, when we see a conclusion in the Bible, when you read your Bibles, when you see a conclusion, the natural thing to do is to go look for the argument on why that conclusion has to be said. Right? That's the natural thing to do. Why would you say this? What's the argument? Now, let's look for the original argument. What was Paul arguing for that he concluded, well, God will have mercy on whoever he wills, and he will harden whomever he wills. What's the original argument for that conclusion. Let's read Romans 9, 15 to 16. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And then 16. So then, it depends, not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. What does that mean? What's the argument? God is arguing, uh, Paul is arguing that what? When God says that I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, it doesn't depend on what the people did or did not do. Right? What human beings' wills are, it doesn't matter on that. It doesn't matter if you're good or you're bad. God's uh, mercy is for God to give. On his own terms, not on Ours. Now, why did Paul have to go there, right? What's the argument before that that stemmed that argument in verse 15? Go back uh, to the beginning of chapter 9. What does he say in the beginning of chapter 9? I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. What? What is it that he's trying to say? I have great sorrow... An unceasing anguish in my heart. I'm so sad. I'm so disappointed. Why? For I could wish that I myself were accursed to, and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Who is he talking about? The Jews. The Israelites, right? For they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises, verse 5, to them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. So why did Paul have to say verses 15 and 16 that God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy? He's talking about the unbelief of the Israelites, he's talking about how come some of my brethren, brothers in the flesh, are not saved. Why? It's not fair. 
right? They're Israelites, to them belong the promise, to them belong, right? The land, to them belong all of these things. They're God's chosen people. How come not all of them are saved? And then Paul goes on to say that their unbelief is not because God's word is not true, but that their unbelief is due to the fact that they are not children of Abraham. We continue reading, right? But how could that be? Abraham is the father of, is one of their ancestors, one of their forefathers. How come? They're children of Abraham. They're part of this whole nation, this whole race of people, right? Aren't all Israelites descendant of Abraham? What did Paul say? Check, check out verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but what? Children of promise that are counted as offspring. Supposing the reason why some Israelites, even though they are descended from Abraham, are not saved is because they're not children of the promise. So another problem. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> they came from Abraham. Like, we're all Filipinos. How come some of us are not full Filipino? Like, we're all come from the same race. How come some of us are not getting the benefits of that race? That's what Paul is saying here, right? So what's, Paul, what's Paul's answer? Because they're not children of the promise. What does that mean? Again, verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 9 to 13. This is what the promise said, right? For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. 11. Oh, sorry, uh, 10, yeah. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather. Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not, nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Twelve. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. So what's the promise? Promise, or we can say prophecy, was that the older will serve the younger. In other words, God will elevate Jacob over Esau, sons of Isaac, who is the son of Abraham. Why would God do that? You've all seen it in the book of Exodus, right? Jacob's sons was the ones who went to Egypt. Why? Because, again, <laughs> they, they sold Joseph. Right? So they ended up in Egypt. All of his sons, including Judah. Now, if you know the story, right? in Exodus, they're supposed to be rescued from Egypt. Right? And then after that, they're supposed to Go on this track, they're supposed to go to the land of Canaan, and there's a lot of things that happen in between. But ultimately, when you read the genealogy in Matthew, where did the Lord Jesus Christ come from? From who? 
from the line of Judah. So the promise back in verse 15 and 16 that uh, Paul was talking about in chapter 9 of Romans is only for those who will receive the Messiah that came from the line of Judah that was born because of the faith of Abraham. You guys get it? <laughs> some people do, some people don't. Right? There was a promise to Abraham, right? They were already old. And they, God said, no, no, no. This time I will come back. I, I, how old you are, you will have a son. And that promise came about to be who? Isaac. But I, was Isaac the promise? No. He had another. He had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Were they the promised? No. <laughs> then Jacob was elevated over Esau. Why? Because he was going to have another son named Judah. And then from Judah will come a, a bunch of other sons that will lead to the actual promise. And that promise is the Lord Jesus Christ. So whoever is the, the included in the promise of the Messiah, those are the children of Abraham. How are you included in the promise of the Messiah? When you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why when Paul says, not all Israelites are included in this. Not everyone is included in this. Only those who will ultimately believe in the promised Messiah. Believe that the Messiah will come, and with the Messiah comes salvation from the penalty of sin. In other words, the children of the promise are those who will put their faith in Christ through the gospel. So what happened? Paul got in trouble. Right? Because in the next verse, somebody's questioning him. Look at verse 14, chapter 9. You guys read it. So after Paul's saying, God elevated uh, Jacob over Esau. That's why the reason why not all Israelites are being saved is because God elevated one over the other. And then from there come the Messiah. And only the children of the promise are included in that. Those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the promised Messiah. Somebody asked him, so is there injustice? That's not right. Why not just... Choose their chosen people. Why not choose everybody? Is there injustice on God's part? Paul says, no. And then he qualifies it by saying, for God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it goes back to our original problem with the sovereignty of God. God chose Jacob over Esau. Not good for human beings. Why would he do that? That's not fair. Isn't that 
God being unjust. Now, remember what we said about the sovereignty of God. And this is why it's so important that you go watch that first one. Remember what we talked about for God to be sovereign. What does it mean for God to be sovereign? It means that he has all authority, power, right? Remember? Both in the spiritual and the physical. Remember that? And that he can override any other ruler or power. Now, when we talk about that, that kind of absolute authority is what Paul is presenting here. Even in the choices that God makes. We can't sit here and say, God, I don't think that's fair. <laughs> it's not right. You're unjust. But when you do that, you take away his sovereignty. Right? Because we're questioning his wisdom. We're questioning his mercy. Why not be mercy to Esau as well? Right? That's what we're doing here. And that's what Paul is saying. No, 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 no. God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. He will harden whom he hardens because ultimately that's what it means for God to be sovereign. Right? What else do I mean by that? Uh, when we say that God's sovereign, I mean that God being sovereign means that his choices are self-determined choices. Okay, let me say that again. For God to be sovereign, his choices has to be self-determined. What do we mean? I mean that when God makes a decision or a choice, there is nothing outside of him that influences him in making that decision or that choice. You get it? Nothing can say to him, God, you should have made this choice or uh, this choice is better, or that decision is better. His choices, God's choices, are self-determined. Now some of you are probably thinking, so are mine. <laughs> well, just keep listening. You'll, you'll, you'll get the point later on. God's choices are self-determined. Paul says it plainly there, right? That God's choice of people are not the ones who were born in flesh or the offspring of Abraham's flesh, but those whom he has promised adoption to. And that's not everybody. Right? And that this choice had nothing to do with anything that these people have yet to do, good or bad. He made his choice independently of anything that can influence it. So what, when we read that, we have another layer to God's sovereignty, right? What's that other layer? That other layer of well, what it means for God to be sovereign means that God is free to do whatever he wants and choose whomever he wants. But does that make him unjust? Because he didn't choose one or he didn't choose both? Does that make him unjust? Paul answers our question. No. Why? Because if it made God unjust to choose one over the other, that means that God's choices are somehow governed by some kind of law of fairness. 
Do you get what I'm saying? I see black stairs. I'm, oh, man. Okay. Let me just... Right? If the answer of Paul to that question of God's, you know, giving mercy to whoever he wants and hardening whoever he wants... If somebody asks Paul, uh, does that mean, that makes God unjust? And Paul says, yes, you're right. Then that means that God's decisions were ultimately going to be determined by some kind of justice. Right? But it's not. <laughs> because ultimately, he's justice. He's just. You know what I'm <laughs> I want you guys to get this. Okay? So you can't say that God's actions are just or, or are, are unjust because that will limit his sovereignty. And when you take away his sovereignty, that means he's not God. There was some kind of injustice in God's part. That means God's choices are governed by some kind of law of justice that God needs to submit to. And sometimes human beings feel that they're even better than God. I'm nicer than God. Because I, I, at least I, you know, you know I, I, I choose everybody. I love everybody. No, we're not. So in God's sovereignty, what Paul is saying here is that we cannot judge God's actions. We cannot judge God's choices. Because if we believe and accept the fact that God is sovereign, then we must trust that his choices, governed by his wisdom, is just and true. And in case of Romans 9, merciful. You just have to trust that. If you believe that God is sovereign. You can't take that away from it. You can't question God's motives. You can't question God's choices, his decisions. You can't question the things he allows and not allow to happen in your life. You can't. Because you don't know what he has in store. You can't see what he sees. That's why he's letting all these things happen. You get what I'm saying? Like those of you who are not married... In question God, God, why am I single? Because in his wisdom and mercy, he's saving you from headaches. He's saving you from the trials and tribulations of the married life. It's true. How come, uh, Lord, how come I got infected with the COVID? There's, got, there's a reason for that. One of our members who's starting a, a business, um, Sister Victoria. She had a small business. Um, she's selling her, her sauces. Now she hit it big. She's distributing now to supermarkets. She called me yesterday. And she, she's, she said, that, you know what? It's a miracle that I'm able to do this. Like I, he's, the guy's giving me the opportunity to grow my business like this. Because you see all the small businesses during COVID, they mostly closed, right? Hers closed too. <laughs> and she got COVID on top of that. Right? And she lost her full-time job. 
Now, during those times when she was feeling all this, <laughs> she lost her job, got COVID, business closed. She was asking God, God, like, what, what is happening? Why are you allowing all these things to happen? At that point, she doesn't know that in a few months, she will be distributing to superstores. She didn't know. And then when she realized that, she's like, and she was telling me this yesterday, she was like, oh, that's why I lost my job. That's why I got COVID, because God needed me to rest. Because this next one is going to be hard. <laughs> this next job that, that God, this opportunity God gave her, it's going to be hard. She's up at 3, 4 in the morning. She has to make the sauces herself. That's why I lost my job. That's why I, you know, I got COVID. That's why my store closed. I won't be able to keep both businesses. But do you, do you see what I'm saying? Sometimes we, we question him, but you, who are we to question? <laughs> That's what Paul answers, right, in Romans 9. Who are you to ask? God chooses because he's sovereign, and in his sovereignty, he has the wisdom to know what's actually better for you more than you do, so stop questioning. That's Paul's answer to, why are not my brothers saved? Why are not all Israelites saved? Because God has mercy on whom he will, and God will harden whom he will in order to save those that he wants to save. And that choice is self-determined. It's not influenced by any of what we do, not influenced by anything that we say. God's mercy is not earned. It's not, you can't buy it. You can't work for it. He gives it out of his own free will. Now, for a lot of people, when we talk about free will, yes, I free. Who, think, who here thinks they have free will? Oh, nobody wants to raise their hand. But when we talk about Oh, God's election. No, 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 no. Free will. I have free will. I can do all things by myself. I'm going to argue, okay, that the reason God is able to choose and decide and these decisions are self-determined is because he's the only one who has free will. I like the reaction of people say, what? I believe that God is the only one who has, quote unquote, free will. Why do I say that? And I'll try to argue for that next week. <laughs> God is the only one really who has free will. That's why his decisions are self-determined. Because he's the only one who has free will. Now, when you hear that, question is, what do, you, what do you mean about free will? What, what, what does free will mean? You want to know? Come back next week. Unless you want us to go for two hours. I don't think so. Okay, let's all bow down our heads. Let's pray. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you. Peace. And give you peace, and give you peace, and give you peace,
Mr. Shah.